0: Welcome to I'm a Writer, but my guest today is John Cotter. John Cotter is the author of the novel Under the Small Lights and the memoir Losing Music, which Oprah Daily calls as much a love letter to sound itself as it is a chronicle of loss. Your world will sound different after reading it. The Millions calls Losing Music a powerful addition to the memoir canon, hard-hitting, beautiful, profound. And the Wall Street Journal says evidence that Mr. Cotter's ear is still keen for the melodies of language sings from every page. Hell, yes, all of that is so true. Welcome, John,
1: hey, Lindsay. Thank you. It's so it's wonderful to be here.
0: I'm so happy that you're here. I um got to listen to your book, which you read yourself. um, and as people are going to quickly realize your voice is amazing and um and you even get into like accents at times and and, you know, give people like higher or lower voices and cadences. It's a delight. And uh, I got to listen to it driving to and from Milwaukee one night. And I, I I just completely was entranced. It just became sort of like, um, I don't know, music itself. You really, I don't, I don't know how you did it. It's magic, what you did on the page, and then hearing you read it is magic. Um, And I just, I can't wait. I can't wait for people to hear. So read to us, please.
1: Oh, I would be delighted. Thank you. Um, Sure. So you know as people who uh if people read the book or listen to the book on on you know listen to the audio version as they'll learn i had a, a i have a condition where my hearing comes and goes it, it used to come and go more than it does now it still does but not as as dramatically and and there were days when i could hear almost nothing at all and then there were days when well i'll I'll read i take them off at bardo on such a day and the room sounds more real than a dream. Voices don't just carry information, they carry subtlety. A woman playing cards with her boyfriend laughs against him, and I can hear the difference between indrawn air preceding a laugh and indrawn air preceding speech. I can hear both his guess I gotcha half whistle inhale and the stomp of her foot as two different sounds, not one confusing sound. Background music is glorious. All year, I've only encountered it as an obstacle, something that would keep me from conversation, keep me from my thoughts. Now I remember why it's there. It doesn't get in the way. It just creates a mood. This stuff is some kind of C-grade reggae, but I love hearing it. I love the faraway shout. It doesn't keep me from hearing an old student call my name across the room. I walk better when I rise to say hello to her. How much more open spaces seem when I can hear the whole range of sounds in place. The echoes of sounds, low ones, high ones, bouncing off all the surfaces, orient us in space. We don't take that extra step back because we can hear someone approaching behind us. Sound is kinetic and we use it to feel as much as hear. Years earlier, When my symptoms intensified, I remember reading a comment in a Meniere's chat room where the author, from the depths of intractable vertigo, lamented her lot. I've started hating the good days, she wrote, because they remind me of what I've lost. I nodded yes as I read, but only from indignation. I couldn't see how anyone could regret a good day. My student turns out to have a head cold. I can hear the catch in her sinuses. The rustle of her newspaper folding up the whisk of Kleenex from a plastic pouch. The two-note talk of the ceramic cup she sets on the varnished wood of the table. All of them stand out on their own. All of them convey information. None are distracting or aggressive. None pull me away from my train of thought. All of them welcome me into the
0: world. That is a perfect way to end and begin. <laughs> um, thank you so much. That's uh, just a, a small snippet of of what readers who haven't read this book or listened to this book can expect. How do you keep that kind of momentum, that kind of uh, like swelling? And as as one of the reviewers said, like it's, it's musical in its own way. How do you how did you keep that up as you wrote?
1: Oh, golly, uh, that's such a good question that i'm at a loss for how to answer it uh it took a long time i i take a long time to write you know i my, my pro is kind of a crete more than it, it you know people I, some people will just let it all gush out on the page they're gushers you know they just let it rip um and you can almost start to pick them out at a certain point after you meet them, you can say, that's a writer who lets it, you know, or after you read them, you know, like, Oh, this person let it rip. And then they go back and clean up afterward. I'm just not that kind of writer. You know, I think that much must be so much harder know, it would be harder for me to do that because I'd have all this material that I had to shape, you know, I think some people when they approach a memoir, they'll think, And there's no right way to do it, you know, Uh, and some of these people are better writers than I am. But when they approach a memoir, they'll say, "Okay, there's this giant mountain that is my life and I have to carve things out of it until I have this shape. That is the shape of the memoir. I didn't approach it that way at all. I just I I had never written a memoir before. I wasn't a a personal writer. I I didn't do this kind of thing. So my approach was more like, "Okay, there's a blank canvas and I'm going to start by putting a little blue. You know, I'm going to start by painting it. Bl- Basically, I start by painting it blue because I'm sad. <laughs> this thing is happening to me. You know, as so I'm painting it blue, and then I got to put some defined shapes in there to indicate what, you know, so we just start with very, uh, very, you know, sort of simple primary thing. And then I would just sort of accrete detail bit by bit and accrete color bit by bit. You know, at a certain point, I realized, okay, so this is much too monochrome. I need to vary the hues, vary the tone. So I'll, you know, I, and then I think, well, what is, what does provide texture in my life? What what are the sources of joy in my life and wonder in my life? You know, even though this, this you know, terrible thing is happening. And so then I would, you know, I, I started thinking about, you know, some of the the music that I had loved and the memories of that. And I started thinking about the friends that are so dear to me. And I, and I had thought about some of my adventures. And then I started, I would paint those in. But it was a matter of, of putting everything in rather than taking everything out. You know, I mean, I ended up having to take almost nothing out uh I I don't think the
0: book could have been 10 pages longer do you so is this also true when you're writing fiction this question I'm about to ask you as you're writing and you're accreting these these scenes and these um shapes these details and you say that you're a, a very slow writer are you almost when it's on the page and you leave it to move to the next thing is it pretty much its final form because you take take so much time, or are you going back and revising later?
1: I'm going back and revising later.
0: Okay, but that's not as painful because because I'm I I feel very similar to you. Really. That, um, no, I and I think I'm a gusher, but I think when um oh god that sounds so gross. I'm it just really
1: it, it's no it's beautiful nature is beautiful. <laughs> I think, but I, but I, I, I could have, but I also could have guessed that. I also, I think you knew that actually.
0: I knew, I knew as you were saying it, I was like, he's talking about me, but um, (laughs) I, I live some of the
1: best writers I got. I'm sure Walt Whitman was a gusher he's like my favorite poet, you know,
0: maybe Uh, now I'm really thinking about that. I'm trying to imagine him gushing. In his own way, I guess. You're probably right. Yeah, because he was always so in the moment, right? Like, and so, like, almost know. on the edge of orgasm, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't want to go back to a shapeless thing. I don't want to go back to the mountain. I want the mountain to have a shape, you know? Like, I, I want, when I'm gushing, I'm, I'm like, really, I'm, I feel like I'm really living in the future and trying to be, trying not to, like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I I, I I want it both ways, I guess. So I wanted to hear from you that there is a way that you don't have to ever revise, but I guess that's not true.
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's true. There are people who say they write that way, right? Didn't like, you know, Kurt Vonnegut used to say that he would write one page and put it aside and that was it. That was the page. It was going to be that way. Um,
0: I'm sure he side. believes that. I'm sure he believes that. Yeah, right. I right. think a lot of people do writing a lot of writing in their head.
1: You know, my wife is like that. It's so funny to me um, being married to someone who's so good at writing uh, because I'm still, I really just still feel like I'm kind of fumbling around in the dark every time I do it. I mean, and really every project, I kind of reinvent the wheel. You know, I was talking to the writer, my friend, Mike McGinnis, and I was talking about the, I was having a hard time with my current project. You know, it's just shaking. It's just got me in its mouth and it's just shaking me around you know, and I'm just really flailing. And he said, well, that's your process. And I said, but that's not typically my process. And he said, well, you know, every time you have a new, a new project, you have a new process and whatever you're doing, that's your process.
0: I think he's a thousand percent right. And I think that might be why you and me and a lot of writers, when we're sitting down on our, on our projects, we feel so, uh, in the weeds in the in you know in the wilderness um and and that's part of the reason that Alex and I started this podcast was cuz there was a lot of time of just like are we doing this right you know like what are yeah. are we idiots you know and then you realize that everybody at some point their project has them and it's in its jaws right and you're and you're trying to just figure out how you could do it how you could do it right
1: yeah absolutely and you want to try to go into it with as much energy and self-possession and confidence and bluster as you can because you know at some point you're going to just completely lose hope yeah frustrated I mean that's certainly happened to this project you know and it changed its form so many times uh you know as I thought well maybe I'll do this oh no that's a stupid idea maybe I'll do this oh that's not no one's going to want to read it if I do that and then I started showing it to people and you know and I also I I mean I wrote I spent maybe three or four years just kind of putting material together, just putting individual chapters together. And then I started showing them to, I published a few of them and then I started showing them to people and people would say, um, okay, well, we can fix this. We can, we can work on it. Um, what my friends, Okay. Hmm. (laughs) my friends, people dear to me, you know, they, uh, I, I remember this one, my, my friend, Tiffany, we were, we were, um, she was like my best friend uh, when i was in denver and I, I remember um uh sitting at this coffee shop and and, she, and talking with her about the piece and she was kind of like like it was our time to get together to talk about the piece and then we just had been talking for half an hour about other things and i was like boy she, she seems not to want to talk about it and she said you know that she said there's parts of the book that don't know the rest of the book is happening And there's parts of the, you know, because I'd written, I'd written these different parts so separately. And so in in kind of this, um, uh, I don't know, decontextualized way. And she said, but we can fix it. We can work on this and we can fix it. And she gave me all these notes. And I was so angry. I mean, I didn't say anything. I mean, I smiled and thanked her, you know, but I was so angry uh, because I thought, uh, you know, because on some level I knew that she was right. And I really? was just kind of hoping, yeah, and I was just kind of hoping that I d- wouldn't need to do the things that I ultimately had to do. Like, there were things that I was afraid I was going to have to do with the book. And after talking to her, I realized, oh boy, I, I guess I I guess I guess am going to have to do those things.
0: Are you going to have to do those things because it's going to make the book better or is it because it's going to make it more readable?
1: Because it'll make it more readable.
0: Okay. So that's something that... <sighs> I, you know it's a struggle right because it sounds like you had a clear maybe not clear but you had a vision and have a vision yeah and that the thing that you showed her was working toward that vision that's right and it wasn't something she recognized or was like satisfying in a way that like readers look for satisfaction not to diminish her in any way but like (laughs) So it's like a struggle because it's like, but I, I'm i doing the thing that I wanted to do. And then I have to think about readers. <laughs> it's hard, right? Because you mm-hmm. want to like, you want to complete the thing that you started out yeah. trying to do.
1: Well, that's the thing. It's it's at a certain point, I, I think this was a big learning step for me, you know, in becoming a writer. I kind of had to humble myself before the reader a little bit. You know, I kind of had to say, well, what is the reader? Does the reader need some context here? Or is the reader going to need some emotional clarity here? Or is the reader, you know, have I piled up too many things in this corridor? And now the reader is not as interested in the contents of these curious little things as I might be. And they just want to get through the corridor to another part of the book, to the to the part of the book they want to head toward. Yeah. Um, which I think is is, you know, particularly for a book like this, where I think there's a lot of detours. You know, I mean, it's, it's a book that I think is like 50% detours. And uh, now you're I, talking I, about
0: losing music, right?
1: Yeah, I am. Yeah. 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 And I, I wanted it to be that way. You know, I mean, my original conception was that it would be like 90% detours, you know, I, like, I, I didn't want, I, because, because, okay. So it, it was, a, my original concept for the, the book was a, was a solution to a problem that I saw, right. Cause it was a memoir about this thing that had happened to me uh many years disease let's call it right Right. which is what right one of the things that people have called it um unhelpfully and uh there's no arc of a narrative there there's no you know it's a condition that got worse gradually then it got worse all of a sudden and then my life kind of fell apart and i i sort of gradually put a life back together that wasn't the old life but it's not that's not a story that's going to provide satisfaction to the reader in the kind of readerly satisfaction that people look for, you know, in, in any way. But my original, my original conception was that I had to be faithful to the experience. And so I'm I'm not going to tell it in a straightforward way. What I'm going to do is I'm going to constantly detour. I'm going to go and say, you know, well, let's look at my friend Jonathan Swift, right. Who wrote Gulliver's Travels. Let's spend some time with him and see how the condition shaped his life, you know, or let's talk about, let's, let's take a moment and talk about loss more generally and how loss affects people. Right. And then, then let's take another moment and talk about luck more generally and how luck affects people, you know, and now let's have a scene where I'm teaching and this thing, you know, lands on me and I, you know, my vision blurs and I can't hear people anymore and my balance gives out. And then, okay, but that's enough of that. Cause it's just going to be more of that. You know, if we kept narrating, if, if we did this as a, as a classical narrative, it would just be that scene repeated dozens of times, you know, a hundred times, and we don't want that. I mean, I read, you know, I read an illness memoir one time that was just, there was this one chapter that was just this long list, uh, this like catalog, this inventory of all of the different alternative medicines that the, uh, and, and alternative, um, you know, attempts at a cure that the writer had, had uh, attempted. And I'm not going to name the memoir because actually I thought it was really kind of ineffective as a chapter because <laughs> it was just like at a certain point, a list just becomes like the individual items on the list disappear yeah. and it just becomes just the feeling of quantity, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. just the feeling of a lotness. And uh, that writer is definitely a gusher. And uh, and I feel, <laughs> I feel as though uh, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do more like a chorus. You know, more like an additive or Smith play, where one person talks and another person talks and another person talks, and what's the story? Well, you kind of put the story together, but this was a little—it's vaunt, and maybe I also didn't have the the chops, but also I—I I, I, it wasn't—it wasn't humbling itself before the reader enough, and I really I needed to do that. You that's
0: know, that's one of the questions that I had for you because you really um, your pain is so visceral, your pain. I mean, that's such a cliche that your pain is visceral, but you're, you really let us see how dark it got for you and how dark it, it, it is for you. Um, and you know, I'm thinking about when you're, um, on campus and you have the car and Elisa, and you're starting to have one of your vertigo spells and, and you have to crawl toward the door to open the door for your friend who's coming to get you. Um, and just like what it feels like to be in this space where something is wrong and there isn't a clear answer. And every time, God, I mean, how many times did you show up with your folders, with your information to a specialist who didn't read it and said, you have many years. It's just many years. When what is men years? Oh, we don't know. It's a, a bunch of different things. It could be this for you. It could be that for you. It's this way for someone. It's. I found myself, um, like doing my own research. <laughs> like I was like, it's hormonal. That's what it is. It's got to be hormonal. And so I was going on that path with you. I had um, what is it? Uh, be benign vertigo from a dental appointment because of True. the way they pitched my chair back, and it yeah with the crystals in my ears or whatever and yeah, it was a whole weekend of vertigo and it was only a weekend and and, uh-huh. it, and I did the exercises to shake everything back up and I thought I cannot imagine if I knew this was going to happen and I could never you know it, it would keep happening to me anyway so I've I I had like a million tabs open up on my phone the entire time I'm listening to your book I'm like no no one is listening to him I like I want to look into, is it, he's so tall. Is it something to do with this thyroid? You know, like, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry, I apologize to you because that's so like demeaning to the work that you've done over years and years, but it's I want fine. an answer. And so your quest for the answer involves talking to doctors, but it also involves thinking about other people who have gone through this, like Jonathan Swift. I can't, you know, how did he do the work that he did Um it involves like just thinking about your your mindset and and kind of unpacking that. And so for me, it was almost like a like a thriller in a way. And at times, where you know, I'm I all of these are pieces to the puzzle because it's you know it's your mind, it's it's your experience, it's your life. Um, and so like the 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 detours that you took felt necessary to me, and and riveting.
1: That's that's so it's wonderful to hear you say that. Thank you uh i mean you know, I used. to, I mean, I read when I was a little kid. I read more mystery novels than I read anything else. You know, I read all those Perry Mason novels. He wrote about about eighty eight of them. I don't think they're necessarily any good, but they they would always they would always. I mean, that's the method of a mystery novel: the detour after detour. Right? You go and talk to this guy, and you're part of his. You know, you go to talk to some weirdo club owner, and you you go up to his pet house and into his weirdo world. And he knew the he knew the the guy who was killed. And then you go down to then you go down to the street level and you talk to the Shushan guy, and he's got his whole other you know um you know uh scummy universe and it's uh
0: and the fact that you have to eventually not be at peace with but i don't know it's just a part of your life that there isn't an answer yet
1: i know and it's it's i made the decision that okay i'm going to stop looking for answers because uh it was consuming me and it wasn't it looking for something that you can't find again and again, and going through this experience, like you said, I mean, do, re- rehearsing the same performance where you bring in the, the files and the records, they don't look at them, or there isn't enough time in an appointment to explain everything that's happened, you know? I mean, at this point I've lived with the condition for, you know, it's been over a decade. And so it, you know, to try to explain, oh well, originally it was like this, and then it changed and it was like this. Trying to explain this, no, people don't want this at all. They just want to do a quick differential. They want, they wanna know what's wrong with you in the first minute and a half. And if they don't know then, they're they're gonna just give you some tests just to I mean, really the Mm -hmm. way we, you know, the the fact that this is a business model anyway, I mean, the fact that this is someone, you know, it's like, like you go to a doctor, the way you go to an accountant is, you know, just so cosmically fucked that Mm -hmm. there's no, there's no way to even get your head around it. I mean, I was reading about emergency room shortages in Massachusetts the other day and, you know, people are waiting 24 hours in emergency rooms. They're waiting, you know, 18 hours, 12 hours. And the, the article said, this is happening at some of the most profitable hospitals in the state. And just the fact that we would even consider, like, you would even think, is this hospital profitable? Like this would, this would even occur to you is so cruel and stupid and brutal. And I really think everyone involved at some level should be ashamed. You know, I was talking with doctors, a few doctors the other day, and I, I like doctors. Basically. My father-in-law is a doctor. I You know, I, there's a lot of doctors that I love. they not all sociopaths. And I was talking to this uh, this couple who are, who are doctors at a, um, a party. And I said, well, obviously, you know, health care should be free for everybody. It should be socialized. And they both said, "Well, but you know, it's socialized in France, and some of their outcomes are not great." And I said, "Well, but you know, the I mean, okay, but the other problem—I'm sure France also has, you know, probably I'm sure some of the French doctors are racist against some of the North African residents, just like in in America, right? A lot of the white doctors are racist against black, you know, uh, black mothers you know, and mothers. Yeah, maternity wards. I mean, my God, that." Mm-hmm. The shit that happens to them. I mean, it's just unconscionable. It's unconscionable mm-hmm. and and cruel. And these doctors I was talking to said, Well, you know, every place has their own story. And I'm thinking, man, you just don't want, you just yeah. you know, you want a Tesla. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, right. you know you right. want a, you want a place on the Cape. Yes. you know, you, you you don't you you're just in this for you.
0: It's the concierge model, right? Like they all want to be the concierge doctor. Um there's like I don't know there's a a new Nicole Holofcener movie uh called no uh you hurt my feelings. And know. she takes her elderly mother to the doctor and the doctor's like, mm, I'm going to I'm going to need $800 a year to keep seeing you and to keep spending this much time with you at your visits." So I just need you to like pay that at the desk and then we can keep doing these visits. And the the mom's like, of course, of course. And then when they get out, um, the mom, the, the daughter's like, and you're not doing that. Right. And the mom's like, of course, I'm not going to do that. You know, it's like it all, my, my personal doctor will tell me every time I see her, they keep telling me I can only have 15 minutes per patient, but I like to take as much time as I want. So if you have stuff to talk to me about, and she's rare, she's really rare. My kid's doctor is, you know, like we got to keep it moving. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's just, you know, like the whole Mayo Clinic chapter in your book is so fascinating, uh, because you know, the Mayo Clinic it's, it's got cachet, it's a name, it's a brand that we can all trust. And then you actually go there and it's the same shit. (laughs) It's the same Mm. thing that you've been experiencing. No one is really listening and they won't make the, take the time to really listen.
1: No, they won't listen. And, and, you know, and then if people do listen, it's almost in a sense worse because you're still in this for-profit model where, you know, for example, one of the, the, one of the people who read my book, um, is a, is a doctor, you know, and he said, well, I think you might have a spinal, uh, leak. Have you checked for that? And I remember when I, I had, you know, I, I did a spinal tap to check for this and I actually lost the results and we were so busy with other, um, we were so busy with other things that we just never had it they said to, they said to me we'll do we'll do one for free for you we're sorry we can do the next one for free and we just didn't do it you know and I'm not you know yeah I know you're covering it just for the listeners no uh she's Lindsay's covering her mouth listening to this this is this, this is geez. yeah it's oh yeah and uh so so one of the readers of the book said well you might have a spinal leak and then he asked me all these questions that the answer was yes he was just like are you hypermobile do you you know do you have you know uh pain associated with this and you know, everything he was saying i was like oh yeah this is all true he said you know have you had to have spinal surgery as a kid and i did and he's he said well what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to go to duke medical center and you're going to have to deal with their process and they're going to need all these tests ahead of time and you know so i went to duke and i went to scheduling and I just don't have the money to do it. Oh my
0: I, god. I can't do oh it. my god. You know,
1: I can't get a hotel for a week down in in, you know, where I don't forget where Duke is, North Carolina somewhere down Durham. there. Durham. Durham, yeah. And uh and do all these tests that they need done beforehand. And I mean, you know, I have insurance, but it doesn't cover all this stuff.
0: Insurance is also I mean it's it's necessary, it's good, but it's when when you have something like this, it's Mm -hmm. ridiculous how little they will pay.
1: Yeah. So I don't, you know, I don't know what the future holds. I know and and, time and any number of other things intervene. I mean, one of the things that you you can cut this too, if you feel like it, but you know, like I broke my back a year ago uh, this month because I fall a lot. I have balance problems. And so I fell and I, and I broke my back and uh, it was, you know fortunately enough it didn't get me anything vital it wasn't anything that I you know I can walk and everything but I'm still dealing with this like intense nerve pain I was bedridden last from January to April last year when the book came out because I was in such pain and uh it just became this whole other fucking thing that we were dealing with because I have balance problems because we never there's no way to address this and so you know and uh Um, Alisa and I both agreed like this is worse than when I lost my hearing because I'm in such constant pain and of course they don't you know medical the medical profession they won't actually give you painkillers any longer you can't get them if you need them uh you know and the only thing the thing that finally started to relieve the pain is when I was able to walk again and when I was able to walk I was able to get uh blood to the area that needed it I was able to Was able to start to heal, but the only thing that enabled me to walk is I finally found a doctor who gave me some like opiates, and then I was able to walk. They kept trying to get me up on this nerve drug for months. They were getting me up on this stuff, Lyrica, that they give you now, it's like this gabapentin, yeah, thing. And it it relieves nerve pain for like half of the people they give it to. Oh my god, but they just kept trying to get me higher and higher on the dose, and this would take months and months. And they would say, Well, in two weeks, try to go up, and I would say, Well, what do I do in the meantime? They say, Well, you know. How about medical marijuana? Have you thought about trying that? This, they really, they say this now. They don't, I mean, it's like, they don't get, they're just so worried about their own ass because there's all these, you know, they released all the stuff about opiates, but of course they're addictive. I mean, no shit. Right. But, uh, but you know, if if a patient needs them for a limited period of time and you have a plan to get them off, then well, you got to fucking prescribe them because they work, mm-hmm. you know, And and they wouldn't, Yeah. So that's a whole not, you can cut that out of that. I don't mean to use up your time, but it just, yeah, that was a whole other fucking thing we dealt with. So it's just like, I don't even know. So now that I'm in less pain from that, I don't even know who I am anymore. Like I go out of the world now having been completely reduced twice in my life by medical stuff to the point where I'm just like bedridden for months at a time. Like I go out in the world now. I mean, I'm okay. I was just at AWP and I was walking around and talking to people and I'm thinking, why does this feel so novel? <laughs> you know, why does this feel so new? It's just this constant sense of, <sighs> yeah, I don't know. It, it it totally screws up your sense of like the pace of a life or like what, <laughs> or like building momentum in your life or anything or like, well, it was actually wonderful for me being at AWP and I, you know, I t- t- I ran into some people who read my book and just talking to them about it and feeling like, you know, I'm just totally comfortable uh, it, being in this place where I've shared the story now and where I'm able to, you know, uh, I'm able to sort of say, yeah, I made art out of it. You know, I made art out of it. I'm an artist and, and not feel like this is some pretentious thing, you know, and not feel like this is something or some con job or whatever you know um
0: why would you feel like it's a con job
1: well my father was kind of a con artist yes and and you know it's like whenever i was if i got an a in school he would say oh you meant you managed to con that teacher you know uh, oh my
0: god
1: is that something you worry about with your with your own kids
0: constantly oh yes constantly um i i yeah i i worry about the right mix of, um, you know, encouragement and, uh, and I don't know, level setting. I I don't even try to level set. In my opinion, the world will do that for you. And it's (laughs) your job as a parent to just be like the, the soft landing place for your kids. Um, Mm. because they don't need to, they don't need, you know, my, my middle child asked me all the time, mom, do you think I'll make it to the NFL? And I always say, yeah, yeah. If you do the work, you just got to do the work. You know, Um, because he doesn't need to hear from me like, well, you know, I don't know. Like, you know, (laughs) he doesn't need that from me. But anyway, go back, go back to what you were saying.
1: No, you're totally correct. Um, No, I just felt, you know, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know what I was saying. (laughs) We were talking about your father,
0: your father saying, oh, your condom, you know, like.
1: Yeah, you know, he he was just someone. I shouldn't say con artist, but he was just someone who. I mean, in a sense, he was. I mean, and some of the people he conned were were us, were his family, you know. I mean, his he 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 acted like such a big shot all through his life, and he was one of those people who's very controlling and had a very powerful personality, and he was had a violent temper. He was you know was a hardcore alcoholic, and you know, we knew that much of this was luster and many of these things relies and of course he dies and we discover you know he was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and you know my my mother's not in a position where she can even sell the house that she's in now because it's too underwater the sense of like it's just this i never i would never ever you know i'm kind of shit with money myself so i would never criticize anybody for being shit with money except that he talked such a big game all through his life, you know he kept he kept blustering and he kept um he was a lawyer and he loved to threaten people, you know he was one of those people who would wake up in the morning and and wonder who he could hurt that day mm. and uh and he was so preoccupied with his own grudges and his own resentments and the story of his life, and anytime you tried to talk to him. He would, would give you a drink, regardless of your age or station in life. I mean, that's for sure. He'd give you a drink. And he'd sit there drinking with you and just recount all of the the wrongs that had been done to him. And oh, and God. warn you. And he warned me as his son. He said, you know, they're coming for you, boy. Watch out. I want to see you staple those eyes open because those hoofbeats are coming. Can you hear them? Can you hear them? Can you hear them coming? you know, and he was this very theatrical character himself. And he would say, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. He he would just, I won't do the monologue. I wrote an essay in, in that magazine at out of Cornell about my dad. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe it'll be a book one day. Who knows?
0: I would he, love that. You do, you do get, you do give us some of your father in losing music. And you say the way that you phrase it is like, my dad would tell me about his life or tell me the story of his life.
1: Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah
0: yeah and um and those moments are are so um poignant and uh like i don't know you you don't give us a ton but i feel like it's enough to give us like a picture of who who he was and who you felt like you were in his presence
1: yeah well i'm still living in relation to him
0: of course you know of course
1: he died I'm yeah. very much in relation to, and it's very strange to me because I became one of those people who uh, I I naturally have a big personality, but I, I disciplined it and I sort of beat it down because you couldn't have a bigger personality than he did, you know? Um, You had to follow his his sort of drum. He was one of those people who was so big that you have to, everyone around him has to be small. And so, uh, you know, it was very strange for me when I was at AWP and people would come up to me and they would talk to me about my book because I I almost felt as though for the first time in my life, you know, I'm in my middle 40s. I felt as though for the first time in my life, I was speaking from a place of confidence. I mm. was speaking, I was saying, Oh, you read my story. Oh, yeah, sure. Let's talk about it. And not not feeling as though I had to apologize for having had the experience or for telling the story or for oh taking
0: the time. You know? it. Oh, my God. Does that feel like freeing? Does it feel sad? Mm-hmm. Does it, what does it feel like?
1: Yeah, both. Yeah. <laughs> you know it felt sad for a long time and now it, it feels more freeing than anything
0: yeah
1: you know but I don't take anything for granted anymore I really don't not not one damn thing and I remember when I first um started to feel ill you know um my wife elisa and I had our our arguments and our our you know uh differences like any couple and um uh you know I wasn't crazy about the move to denver and uh, I was pretty stressed out with the adjuncting thing I was doing. She didn't really know why I was doing it when I'd sort of quit a good job to do it, you know. And, and, um, and man, uh, at this point in my life, I'm just so, so grateful for her every day and just bask in her presence. And I just, I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to t- take my time with her for granted, you know because one day one of us won't be here one day, you know, all this is finite, you know, everything is so temporary and, uh, everything is on loan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we can't lease, we can't lease our, our bodies. We, we, unfortunately we, we can only check them out, you know, and eventually we start getting emails that, you know, do you want to renew if We're overdue? And, uh, uh, you know, what, what are the fines? And, uh, every time I open a book, I I try to you know I, I I just feel like someone who's survived is maybe the you know someone who sh- survived a shipwreck or someone who's and I'm not I'm not remotely the person I used to be I'm not remotely you know and I I just each sunrise is um very special to me and very beautiful really you know I mean it's it's it's, it's the worst Bob Ross cliche it's you know it's it sounds like a Hallmark card it it sounds like you know um, uh, sounds like the kind of thing your grandmother tells you to, to tell people, but it's, I, uh, there's a reason your grandmother says this cause your grandmother knows, you know, it's, uh, cause she's only got so many left herself, you know, and she started to become aware of them. I, I really do feel as though any, I felt as though every, uh, at this conference I was just at, I felt as though every interaction was just a treasure. And I, and I kept catching myself trying to be either backward thinking or forward thinking and and stopping myself you know but either backward thinking by saying um you know backward thinking is sort of the language of regret like oh why didn't I have this sort of this sort of why didn't I have this this um just pleasure in in lived life when I was younger why didn't I approach why didn't the first time I come to AWP why didn't I feel this way then why did why instead the first time I came to AWP did I feel like a little you know Did I feel bad that, you know, that that there was all this life around me that I wasn't a part of. You know, I wish I had felt more open. But I try to get out of that space of regret. And then, but I try not to be too future-oriented, too. I know some people are purely future-oriented. You know, I'd meet someone and I'd have a great conversation with them. And then I would worry about, oh, what's the next thing I have to get to? And so I would say I would offer something. I'd say, "Oh, email me," or I'd say, "You know, oh, let's keep in touch," or whatever. But this is this is just projecting forward. And sometimes they would look at me like, "But I'm right here, the fuck now. Like we could have this (laughs) experience right now, you know." And so I try to catch myself in that in that too. Not always perfectly, but I think sometimes I did.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I struggle with that too in terms of like pre parenthood, post parenthood. I think Mm -hmm. like those kinds of enormous life events can make you appreciate the moment in a way that you weren't aware of before. And like, I think as a parent, I feel near constant anxiety, but there'll be, there's also this like hyper appreciation for the now because they're this age right now. And then, and then, you know, and, and I think, you know, pre kids, I'm sure that I thought I was living in the moment or appreciating what I had, but it was just so different. It was just not tinged with that. Like, I don't know that, um, that like just awareness of loss. I don't know. I, I I feel like that's sort of what happens maybe both with illness and with someone coming into your life that you could die without, you know, and it's just, it's just different. And it's like, I don't know. I, I feel so stupid. I feel that, that, that young person of me feels so brash and stupid. Um, but at the same time, you know, I try to be a little bit more like, well, you know, she was young. <laughs> you know, like that's what youth yeah. is, you know? Like, I don't yeah. know. I don't know.
1: No, absolutely. You have to be forgiving. And then also, you know, I was reading this. Um, you ever read M. John Harrison? No. He's this British um, like genre writer. Like he wrote like SF, but it isn't, it isn't really SF. It's actually really like high art literary stuff right um uh but it's he wrote this memoir called i wish i was here uh you know kind of about how he just he said you know some people learn to disassociate early and i was one of them and i was never in the room that i was in and so he's like so i can't write a memoir because i wasn't there i oh. was having my own thoughts about whatever else was was going on oh my god and um and so he said you know uh But he said, you know, it's taken me a long time to realize that I don't, I don't even, I don't owe things to all these people I thought I owed things to, even my former self. Yeah. And I kind of like this idea of feeling like you don't owe anything to your former self, which is a very novel concept for me, because I had all these, you know, ideas about what I ought to do when I was younger and how I ought to do things. And sometimes if I, if I don't live that way, I think I feel as though I'm betraying that concept.
0: Well that person also got you like it worked for a while right like i used to be very punishing to myself and very deadline you know and self-imposed like deadlines that were meaningless they were rules i made up but it worked for me because i was getting stuff done and and like i was you know like i was out there doing stuff and and only like this year i don't i don't do um New Year's resolutions. I hate New Year, I hate the New Year because it's just a day. Like it's just another day. But Sweet. I was thinking, if I really did commit to something this year, it would be to just like have a running catalog of things that I am letting go. And they can be like little embarrassments that keep coming back to me about when I'm an idiot in front of people. Or they can be big time shame, you know, they can be um something I did, like a harsh word to my kids, or I'm just gonna let that shit go because. I have conditioned myself to believe that the the harsh way that I treat myself has got me success, but it hasn't at all. You know, it's just like a self-imposed uh, way to keep myself in line, but I'm it it's, it's not actually helping me where I am today. So I can let go of these things that I use to <laughs> beat myself over the head in the middle of, of the night. If I, if I wake up and my my mind starts going and I start thinking about how awful I am Um <laughs> I'm still going to do work, right? Like those things are not helping me. They're actually making me feel less worthy of these endeavors that mean something to me.
1: Yeah. You know, I, my, my, I think, I think, I hope I'm getting this right. It was someone in my little group chat. I think it was uh, Billy Fatsinger. He said, um, it might not have been him. He said, I try to think of this. Um, I try to think of, uh, ideas that I have about myself as just this passing weather as just this cloud system that doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on you yeah. know uh and uh I think someone else said I try to just think of my my body as this animal I have to take care of and be kind <laughs> see that's
0: genius if you think of it as something that's lovable like that and cute
1: <laughs> right that's-
0: That's genius right there because it's hard to have a body. It's hard to have a body and it's hard to embody your body or, you know, your mind or your soul or both or whatever. It's hard to connect them.
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I wrote about this in my book. This is one of the reasons I didn't not to get all dark toward the end of our conversation, but this is one of the reasons I didn't KMS, you know, uh, halfway through the halfway through the, my journey is I remember sitting in Santa Monica on the pier and, and watching this, this this huge homeless community yeah. in Santa Monica on the pier. And some of them aren't doing so good. And I was just thinking to myself like, oh, Christ, there isn't enough love in the world. There isn't enough care in the world. This is, you know, it's it's just, I mean, you know, I maybe 10, 20% of them are actively want to be there, but I'm positive most of them don't. And most mm-hmm. of them are dealing with shit they need help with. And I'm thinking to myself, what can I do? Is there anything I can do to help them aside from giving them some, some money, you know? And then I thought to myself, well, I'm in a tough situation right now too. Maybe the kind of, you know, um, I wouldn't think to blame them for this because here they are in the situation, but they need as help. Why am I blaming myself? You know, and I think, I think their lives are, are, have a lot of worth. Why don't I think mine does? And it's this quality of you know I think I referred to it in the book as self pity which is maybe it's this it's this utterly um, pejorative phrase now that we use to, we use just you know um, so cruelly but I mean really to some extent it's okay <laughs> you know if you feel if you feel as though you to feel as though you matter to feel as though you just have to be kind with yourself to feel as though you have to take yourself by the hand, you know, like you would a child and just sort of say, you know, I'm here, I'm here with you. What do you need? And uh this is, you know, important. I think, I don't know. I try to try to embody it.
0: I think that's quite beautiful. I think that could be part of the reason why sunsets and sunrises and And, you know, background music and the sound Elisa's mouth makes when she eats something she loves, (laughs) which is such a delightful part of the book, all of Elisa's noises, Elisa Gabbard is, uh, has been on our podcast before. So go seek out her episode if you haven't. Um, And that is John's wife. And I, you know, like, you said that you were ending it on a dark note, but I think you've ended it on such a beautiful note, such a life, I don't know, life appreciating note. Um, I, you know, I think what you said is crucial.
1: Thanks. Thank you.
0: No, thank you, John. I, um, I actually could talk to you for another hour or three. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I didn't ask any of the questions that I've bulleted out. Cause I just, I just wanted to talk to you. Um, I cannot wait to read whatever it is you're working on. I'm there. I'm with you. I don't care if it's not for the reader. <laughs> I just, you. I'm there. I, uh, I am so happy that I that I got to listen to your book. That you wrote it. Um, that it's out. Um, Milkweed Editions is who published it. It's available everywhere. Go get it. Um, and thank you. Thank you so much.